Gift Biz Unwrapped, Episode 49. You're helping change a life at a time, and each one of those lives is valuable. Hi, this is John Lee Dumas of Entrepreneur on Fire, and you're listening to Gift Biz Unwrapped, and now it's time to light it up. Welcome to Gift Biz Unwrapped, your source for industry-specific insights and advice to develop and grow your business. And now, here's your host, Sue Monheit. Hi there, I'm Sue, and welcome to the Gift Biz Unwrapped podcast. Whether you own a brick-and-mortar shop, sell online, or are just getting started, you'll discover new insight to gain traction and to grow your business. And today, I am super excited to have Katie Leakey joining us. Founded in 2002, Katie, along with her husband, Philip, are the founders and pioneers of the natural, African-made, sustainable jewelry and elegant crafted products called the Leaky Collection. Based in the Rift Valley of Kenya, East Africa, these renowned designers use natural elements of fallen wood, sustainable grass, and bush-fired porcelain to create uniquely exotic products. Each colorful piece contains vibrant design appeal while giving back to those that produce it. Katie's motto, nature is our inspiration, people are our purpose. When you purchase a product from the Leaky Collection, it helps create women entrepreneurs. This in turn helps educate children, raises the level of health in communities, and brings pride and power to the rural East African women. One product that I think you all would recognize are the Zulu grass necklaces that you can see all across America in gift and accessory shops. That's what we'll be talking about a little bit later today. But for now, welcome to the show, Katie. Thank you very much, Sue. It's such a pleasure to be here, and I'm very impressed with the work that you do. Well, thank you, and I am just so thrilled to capture all of this information just right before you go back to Kenya. Yes, it's perfect timing. As our listeners know, we like to revolve the conversation around the life of a motivational candle. We light the candle and this shines on you and you share all your stories, your experiences and everything having to do with the Leaky Collection. Are you ready to light it up? Yes, absolutely. All right. Well, let's talk a little bit and get somewhat of a subtle view into Katie Leakey. If you were to have a motivational candle, what color would the candle be and what would the quote be on your candle? Hmm. I love white candles. And the quote, I would probably say, strive with everything that you've got and be gentle and kind to yourself as you are to others. Such a compassionate quote that really follows through with everything you're doing with your business. You have to take everything in stride. I mean, sometimes it gets very, very difficult out there in the bush. And I'm reminded actually by the women, they'll say to me, you just have to remember that you're helping change a life at a time and each one of those lives is valuable. Don't look for much more than that if you're you know, really struggling. Sometimes that's what you have to focus on. Got it. Let's start out with talking about the Leaky Collection. This is so interesting, I think, for all of our listeners, because often we're talking about products that are made stateside or, you know, even if they're made in Mm -hmm. Europe or somewhere else, certainly not in the bush in Africa. Mm -hmm. And I will also say, and you know, when we met, I was telling you how much I love the Maasai people. So I'm so interested in just hearing all of this. And it'll be so new to all of our listeners. So I'm really excited to jump right in. Talk to us a little bit about how the Leaky Collection got started. 
what happened originally is that when I moved to Kenya in 2001 to be with Philip when we got married, it just so happened to coincide with the closing of a very terrible drought. And we found ourselves um, financially supporting uh, over 100 families. The men had taken the cattle elsewhere to try and find grazing and didn't want to, but had to leave the women and children behind. So they didn't have any means of support. And it was a real struggle. Obviously, when it got to 100 families or so, it wasn't sustainable for either Philip and myself or for the women. They didn't like being dependent in that way. And Philip had always had a career in politics and in the environment. So he was the one who came up with the idea of creating work for the women from using a local grass. And that was really what started the ball rolling. So we went ahead and designed some products and got that off the ground and gave the women work. And it just exploded. It took off from there. Okay, so you've got all these natural environment opportunities and you zeroed in on the grass. How did you know from that grass that you could make something out of it? I mean, how how did he know that? He had worked with it before. He's a sort of a jack of all trades and a MacGyver all woven into one. <laughs> and he used to use the grass in making furniture years ago. And he knew how resilient it was and how strong it was. You have to process it in a certain way, a certain way of drying it properly to get the strength out of it. But um, he had the, the knowledge to begin with. And then how did you know that that was going to be able to be a piece of jewelry that could be sold? <laughs> Well, we turned it into beads. We knew that the women were beaters, and that's the work that they love to do. So we thought, well, okay, let's put together beaded jewelry. And actually, we did start very short time, though, only about a month or two, work with their traditional jewelry. But we quickly found that there wasn't enough of a market for it for all of these families. So we had to come up with something that worked for a contemporary global marketplace and started looking at the grass. And then it was a long process of learning, well, how can we color it and dye it so it has the color of different beads? And how can we get it small so that they can bead with it? And there was a lot of R&D research that we had to do to be able to make a piece of jewelry out of it. So you tried one thing and then if it didn't work, you adjusted it or tweaked it a little bit and then you moved on to something else and finally ended up with now what we call the Zulu grass necklaces, correct? Yes. And we even started out with different designs of it in the beginning, but ended up coming around to this one contemporary globally appropriate strand that you can use many, many different ways. What do you mean when you say globally appropriate? Well, it's wonderful to have um, jewelry that reflects the region in which it's made, but often that doesn't translate outside that region. So what we tried to do is come up with something that would have a life and an interest to people anywhere in the world and as wide a age group as possible because we needed to generate a lot of work. We had hundreds of women who needed work. So that's what we tried to do is come up with something that would go to the 20 set, the 30 set, the 40 set. And we feel pretty confident that that's what we hit with this one elasticated strand that can be worn as a bracelet, necklace, anklet, hair tie, that type of thing. Got it. And Gift Biz listeners, if for some reason you do not know what these Zulu grass necklaces look like, jump over to, if you want, jump over to my Instagram page at giftbizgal and you'll see a photo there. And I'm thinking, Katie, also on your website, The Leaky Collection, there's probably photos of it there too. So if you need to check that out real quick to understand what we're talking about, you can certainly do that or do that after the show, of course, if you're driving your car or doing something else. (laughs) (laughs) So how long... In terms of a time frame, would you say it took you from this initial conception of the idea of using this grass 
to getting the product that we now know as Zulu grass? Well, how long did it take to go through some of the different evolutions to finally land the product? Mm, that's a good question. A couple years or was it faster? No. Or? Yes, it was faster than that. I would say probably less than a year, but it did take a while. One of the most difficult things to do was to find a dye that was color fast and environmentally sound and that worked so that we could get the wonderful array of colors. We've had as many as 275 colors. Oh, wow. Of this. Yeah, it's quite amazing. We finally ended up with a EU approved low impact dye that is a textile dye, but environmentally sound. And that's what we use. So it's color fast. But that was that was the most difficult. Okay. So give biz listeners think of this. If you're developing a product, it's not necessarily that you're going to land it right away. You know, you still start with an idea, you test it, you tweak it, you test it again, and you tweak it, just like Katie's talking about here. So a year actually to me sounds pretty fast because I know that the Zulu grass necklaces have been around now for quite a while, and I've always seen them in this manner. So you landed it pretty quick. Let's get into the life of the people who are producing the product for you, and to the extent that you're willing to share how it all works production-wise. Well, we're a fair trade company and the tenants of fair trade, as some of your customers may not know, first of all, is a living wage. And so we worked with the women to determine what that was. Maybe I should I should rewind even a little bit further back. What we do is we create work opportunity over vast areas. So we came up with a working system where women will come to a work site and check out kits and assemble the kits. Then they turn the strands back in and we tie them and size them and, you know, do all of that. And then they check out another kit. When production is up, those work sites can be scattered across the Rift Valley so that you can take more work to more women. The reason I want to give you that picture in your head first is then understand that within each of these areas, there will be communities around them of Maasai that live in the the Boma surrounding, say, a particular worksite. So those women are involved with us in helping set the living wage, in working with the company on their schedules and how they want to interface with the work opportunity that's available. We are very careful and very cognizant of the cultural needs of the women. They have a lot of needs within their culture. They have work to do. They have ceremonies to go to. They are set to keep the social business of the community alive and thriving. So what we do is we set it up so that they can come work a half a day a week, a day a month, six days a week, whatever they want, whatever their needs are to come and go. So that's our primary focus on setting up the business that way. Does that help explain in starting out? Yeah, it certainly does. And that's really interesting because it's an element that we wouldn't usually consider if you're looking Mm -hmm. to produce something over here in terms of their culture with ceremonies and other things that are family responsibilities, I'd say, within their culture Mm -hmm. is something that we don't necessarily consider over here, although probably ought to consider more. (laughs) But I really like what you're talking about because you're really honoring what they need to keep sacred for themselves and allowing them to be able to work and have a sustainable income around that. 
For us, it's easy to do because we live among them. I think that's one of the biggest defining differences that we have as fair trade producers is that we actually live there and not many people do. Most people live here in this country and then interface with their producers once or twice a year by physically going there. The point of that is, is not that ours is better. I don't mean that at all. What I mean is we see impact and change immediately. We live it. We are a neighbor. And we build our business as a neighbor, not as some company coming in from outside. And again, not saying that that's better. What I'm saying is we can make changes immediately and adapt immediately with what is necessary for the people on the ground. Right. Because we are. We are one of them. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Right. Have you ever had a situation where you haven't had enough people working? Yes. And what do you do in that situation? I have a very funny story for you. (laughs) Oh, good. We love stories. So go for it. (laughs) Okay. Okay. For all your listeners out there, imagine this as being something that you have to contend with. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. We were, I forget how many women. It was a lot. I mean, not that much in the beginning, but a lot for us at the time. And there were probably about 350 women working to produce some orders. And they would walk to, you know, like I said, these general um, sites. And the message comes in one day that the women aren't showing up. And, you know, of course, we ask, well, where are they? What's happened? And we said, well, they've been kidnapped. No way. Yes. And I said, what? What are you talking about? And they said, well, they've all been gathered together by the warrior class to go off and build a manata, which is a ceremonial village, temporary ceremonial village, to take care of the elder ceremony for the region. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. So we said, okay, this is going to play well in America. How do we tell our stores that we're going to have trouble fulfilling their orders because our workforce has been kidnapped? (laughs) Oh, my. (laughs) So... One of the things we quickly learned that we had to institute for ourselves was to hold a high inventory where we were so that when these cultural requirements came along that we were able to keep the business flowing without any hiccups or breaks. Wow. Yeah, clearly something that we wouldn't necessarily identify with here for sure. (laughs) Oh my gosh, that's crazy. So that's what you do now is you have inventory over there just waiting, waiting to go. Yes, as much as possible, yes. Excellent. So one of the things that I found absolutely incredible when you and I were talking in your booth, I met Katie at the New York Now show. I asked you, Katie, because I see these Zulu grass necklaces everywhere and the bracelets and, you know, all the different things that you can do with them. They're so flexible in terms of different options of the ways to wear them. And so I asked you, well, how many people have copied what you're doing? Because I see them everywhere. What percentage of these out there are the real official your Zulu grass versus other? And what did you tell me? In the early days, actually, funny enough, China tried to knock us off. They came out with a product that was made of plastic uh, the following year after our first trade show, and it didn't last. I didn't even see them the second trade show season in six months' time. They were gone, and they weren't successful. But it was such a blatant, obvious try to poach our idea. Their packaging was similar. They tried to do similar things with little plastic tubing, and it didn't work. It looked awful anyway. But no one's been able to duplicate the work that we do with the grass, and that is one of our protected secrets within the company for that reason. And we did it for another reason as well, to keep that proprietary information. This grass does come from the wetlands, and we want to protect the wetlands, which this jewelry actually did. 
The Maasai used to burn the grasses around the wetlands, and they stopped burning it when it had a value. So the wetlands came back, the wildlife came back and everything else. So it was a real success story by keeping that information proprietary as well. Sure, because it goes full circle then, because they want to preserve the wetlands for the product that they're going to use to make money to keep their life going. Exactly. So the whole thing circles through beautifully. Yes. And again, for our listeners, I just want you guys to understand too, there's no machinery involved here. These are all hand done. And it's just amazing, you know, taking grass right out of the wetlands, cutting it into these small pieces, dyeing everything, and then I guess you'd call it beating, but stranding Mm-hmm, the grass, correct. you know, uh-huh. all of it is done by hand by these wonderful Maasai women. And to know that and to purchase necklaces like that or any fair trade products that come like that is such a valuable thing that we are giving back really to the world, I would say. Yes. And I want to say one other thing about this that has been the most inspiring part, I guess, for me about the jewelry itself is that it's become like a consumable for women in the sense that, you know, I I always wear, I don't know, five or six strands around my wrist at any given time. And they do last, by the way, for about six years where you can wear them in the ocean and in the sea. And uh, You can? Yeah, yeah. I know that. Oh. Oh, yeah, they're great. You can wear them in the shower. They're super sports jewelry. People use them all the time in yoga. You can wear them in a steam bath. I mean, I just wear them in the shower and everything. They become like a consumable. For instance, if I'm at the airport and don't want to get bunked from a flight or whatever, or I need my seat changed and the woman's working really hard behind the counter to help me out, I will pull off a strand and thank her by giving it to her. And I say, I just want to thank you so much for what you've done. And I asked to wrap around her wrist and I do it. And then I tell her the story about the women. And I say, this is made by what you just said, you know, the Maasai women in East Africa. And they do all of this by hand and it helps them educate their children and have better health care for their families and put food on the table. And I just want you to think of them and know that they put this together with love and get power from it. And I hope it'll give you love and power as well. And that's what women do with this jewelry. That's why it's had such a wonderful long life. I love that. Well, I only have, I think, five strands, but I'm going to have to buy more and I'm going to start spreading the love like that because that's a great story. We get cards and letters all the time coming into the company who say, so-and-so gave me this piece of Zulu grass jewelry. We have women writing from hospitals where they've been sitting in oncology units, you know, with a husband or a child, and they begin talking to each other. And one of them has given the other a piece of Zulu grass to help keep the woman strong. And it's just, it's so moving and so warm and just, I don't know how to describe to you the feeling that that gives me, especially knowing the women in Kenya who put them together and the love with which they do put them together. You know, I've been to Kenya. My husband and I took the family on vacation there several years back now. The best vacation we've ever taken, mind you. And as I'd said earlier, I just love the Maasai Mm-hmm. people in general. Could you share a little bit with our listeners just what their life is like, how they live, just give an insight into the world of the Maasai? Sure. Where we live in the Rift Valley, they still live a very traditional lifestyle. And what that means is the men are involved in the business of cattle trading with each other. That's their primary work and business still today in the rural areas. And the women are mainly responsible for taking care of the homesteads. The morning starts with 
the women getting the children off to school for those children that are in school. And that starts very early. I mean, we're talking 4.30 in the morning before the sun comes up and they'll make tea and a porridge and get their children fed. And not all children go to school. Some are kept behind to take care of the cattle and the goats. And even as young as you know, five, six, seven years old, the children will take the livestock out to the bush to graze for the day. And then those that work for us will come and work for the day or however long they want, and then be back home in time for the children coming home from school. The children will do their homework or whatever, like most children will, again, before the light is lost because nobody has lights at home. And then the men, if they're not away trading cattle, will come back in the early evening. And the children will usually play with the men and that sort of thing. And the women will visit with each other and then they'll have a light meal for dinner and go to bed. And it starts over again. That's roughly how it goes. The women do build their own houses. They do walk to collect water. They do do what's considered to be the work. But I will say that they are not trod upon. It's a very loving society. It's a very respectful society. In fact, I can tell you a really interesting story about that too, if you want. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I don't want to drone on about it, but this fascinated me. One day we decided to do a story about beauty. You remember when Lapita won, uh, the actress here in America, who's Kenyan, won the Academy Award, and then People Magazine put her on their cover as Most Beautiful Woman. So we decided that we would take a copy of that magazine and ask the Maasai women what they thought. Did they think she was really the world's most beautiful woman? And that opened up this wonderful conversation about beauty. And you're not going to believe. What's your guess on what the men said about beauty? Beautiful. In terms of what beauty is to them? Yeah. What to a man there? What would he say makes a woman beautiful? I would say I'm going to cheat a little bit because you already told me this story when I was with you, but I'm going to tell you what I would have answered had I not known the answers. Okay. And that would have been, I would have said their eyes, Uh huh. like what they see in their eyes, in women's yeah. eyes. That's what I would have said. And as I explained to you before, I was absolutely stupefied, stunned when they said her presence. When she walks into a place, her stature, her presence, her physical being, how she carries herself, how she feels about herself. And I just thought that was the most gracious and deep answer I have ever heard. And that is what I'm, I I tell that story in a description about their culture. Because I think often people have, are told this misunderstanding that, well, you know, the men just stand around on one leg and stare off into the bush and the women do all the work. And, you know, I can see where they get that, but that's actually not how it is played out within the culture itself. Yeah, I mean, it's just, you know, there's less understanding, I think, from us in terms of what intricacies of the tribal cultures are. And mm-hmm. I don't even know if tribe is the right word. But, you know, these are people who are, live so much closer to the land than we do now. Mm-hmm. And you seem to think that if it's if they live closer to the land, they're a lot more primitive. But in many ways, they are deeper, more feeling, more culturally sound than we even are because they're so close to nature. They rely on each other as communities to get things done. And it's a very rich life. And I would say far from primitive, depending on what your definition of primitive would be. 
Yeah, I agree with you completely. And I can give you another example that your listeners might find interesting. One day I was working in my tent and someone came running to me saying that my good friend needed help. Her cow had fallen off a cliff. And so I got in the truck and drove there. To make a very long story short, it was an all-day ordeal. But what had happened is she only had one cow. Her husband had died. She didn't have a lot wherewithal. So it was a, this cow was desperately important, and it had a calf that was back at her homestead. Eleven men had come in the afternoon the day before when they found out that the cow had fallen down this cliff, and the cow had broken its back, and it was lying down by, at the bottom by the river. They had come that afternoon, and they lit a fire next to the cow and stayed with it all night long to keep it from being taken by the leopards or lions. And then painstakingly lifted that cow back out and up to my truck, which was what took all day long. We took it back to Herboma and then hand fed it for her for a week to keep it alive long enough to get the milk to make sure that her calf was stable. And then they, of course, you know, humanely put the cow down. But it was all the men that did that. Wow. I don't even know what to say to that story. Yeah, so they're very, it's a very loving community that works very closely together. And that's life there for them. And it's just wonder. it's a beautiful thing to watch. I mean, every culture has, you know, its ups and downs and everything else. But I would say overall, it's a lovely, wonderful culture, which is why it's lasting so long, even in modern times. Sure. What types of challenges or any advice that you have or insights that you have in terms of making the product and then dispersing it over to the different countries? How did you figure out what exactly you needed to do to be able to get all of the product into different stores? I think the biggest, uh, the first thing we learned was we had to ship from America. We hadn't taken that into account when we started. Wait, but you're in Africa. You had to send everything to America first? Yes. We had to have a company in America that we shipped to and then dispersed it from there. The individual stores across the United States did not want to deal with companies in different countries. They wanted to get their shipments from the United States. And that we hadn't thought about. So we quickly put that together. You know, we just rented a little storage unit and started from something small like that. So that was the first. And I think the other thing that is a challenge is to marry the rural workforce to the high demands of what we call Main Street Shopper. There's a lot of quality control we do. There's a lot of steps and quality checks all along the way that have to be in place all the time. And it is relentless. You never, ever get away from that. No matter how many years we've been in business, no matter how simple the strand is, you really have to stay on top of quality control. That's part of the reason why you started doing the packets, right? So that you have all the tones of the colors yes, the yes. same, so that you're going to have consistency throughout the line. Yes. And then also quality control, probably with the dyeing process and yes, yeah. the sizing of the beads, all of that. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. And that's just because the market demands yes. that type of quality is what you're saying. Yes, absolutely. Got it. All right. Well, let's move on now, Katie, into the reflection section. I want to talk about you specifically and what's helped you to be successful. Is there something you have, a trait in yourself that you can identify that's helped you to just move all of this forward and have it become the success that it is? I'm not sure that some of the traits that have had to rise to the surface are necessarily positive ones. I would say stubbornness. Well, would you say tenacity, maybe? Yeah, yeah, that's probably a better word. But yeah, refusing to give up, refusing to be beaten. You just have to find a solution. Right. You don't give up. 
And I actually really learned that more from Philip, from my husband, than anything else. I have never met a person in my life who has more drive and determination and natural-born curiosity. He just doesn't see any challenge as anything other than an excuse to learn something. And you guys were determined not to give up. And it's such a give back, you know, which is the other thing is you're not just doing it for yourselves. You're doing it for all the people. Yeah, absolutely. And that's challenging. It's really challenging. Like, for instance, during 2008, when the whole world went into a financial slump, it was really, really challenging and heartbreaking. I mean, you know, during those years, we just didn't have the sales to support work for as many women. You know, you go through things like that, but you do it together. At least in our situation, you do it together. So you all work together and learn. And coming back from there, so 2016, where is it at now? Are you up and thriving and needing more workers all the time and growing or what's the status now? It's interesting. What we're going through is a, how would I describe it? We're changing. We're, I'm trying to, morph isn't the right word. I'm, I'm stumbling here. I apologize. But work with new technologies to reach out further is what I'm trying to describe. So much of the purchasing has moved online, number one. And right. so much of the youth or the younger, say, 20, 30-year-old set are no longer brand loyal And they also are not very well-versed on fair trade. So what we're trying to do is to get the word out more about fair trade. And what we're trying to do is to access those people who shop online. I think that's a challenge that we all meet right now. Yeah. It's happening everywhere, fair trade or not. But it's interesting because a lot of the younger generation also are very concerned about the environment Mm -hmm. You know, having natural things. And I think some of these, you know, like fair trade really resonates with them. They Mm -hmm. just haven't had a lot of exposure to it, I guess I would say. Yeah, I think that's probably the case. But I do find it curious how few in this country, in America, really understand what fair trade is and how few people in general understand. And I think that's probably the biggest mission that our industry faces We need to make it simpler for people to understand not only what it is, but the value that it brings, not only to these communities, but to the world. Right. Well, let me help you with that through this podcast. How about that? That's wonderful. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. All right. What tool do you use regularly since you're all the way on the other side of the world from us and living in a different environment than we're accustomed to? But what do you use to keep productive or to create some type of balance as you're going throughout your days? The balance for me personally is to take a walk out in nature and to just be there. The biggest thing that helps me in doing the business is base camp. It's not something I use to balance myself, but as far as bringing the business together and being able to control projects and work on projects, I use base camp. As far as relaxing and balancing myself personally, it's just the love of nature. Got it. And Basecamp, I could see, is a perfect tool when you're having to communicate or work on projects with people all over. Yes. Yeah. It's fantastic. I just, I love it. I couldn't do many of the projects without it. And when did you go onto that platform? Hmm. Three years ago, I think. And you saw a real difference once you did? Yeah. It's, I don't know if anyone uses it, but I would highly encourage people to go to it, check it out. You can sign up for free and then do some of their tutorials with it. And you'll see what I'm talking about. It holds everything in one place. It makes it easy to organize. You can stay on top of communications. You're not fielding through countless emails trying to say, oh, where did Steve say that? And, you know, I remember somebody said such and such, but I can't find it. It just keeps it all in one place. 
very organized, easy to work. I totally agree. I do use Basecamp myself too, and I love it. Mm-hmm. So yeah, Gift Biz listeners, if you have any type of team situations, even within your own office, if you have certain projects that you're doing, you can put a project into Basecamp and anything related to that project, like Katie's saying, is all just stays together. So you don't have random pieces here and there and everywhere. It's all just in one place. So really worthwhile. Mm-hmm. All right. What book would you pull out and recommend to our listeners that would be valuable for them as they're starting business or just overall? Well, I do love business books. And I would say in business, I thoroughly enjoyed Lean In. That was probably the last business book that I read. And I do enjoy that type of reading. I also found Steve Jobs very inspiring. (laughs) And I was not a Steve Jobs person. I didn't pay attention to him. He was not on my radar at all. And when the book came out, somebody had recommended it. And I just pulled it out and started reading it. And I literally couldn't put it down. I found not only his work ethic awe-inspiring, but I found his creativity inspiring. And I really had no idea how he changed our world until I read that book. It's pretty incredible, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is. And, you know, I have my iPhone now, and I can't tell you how many times that has saved me out in the bush because it's the only thing that will get the email when everything else is shut down. It's the only thing that will have reception when all else dies. Wow, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure the Android phones are just as good, but I had this antiquated little thing with a, you know, the the flip open screen, which everyone right. laughed at me. And I said, <laughs> yeah, but I can leave this in the airport and no one's going to pick it up. I can come back and it'll still be there. Oh, there's a point. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> <laughs> they all laugh at me. But I finally did go get the smartphone and I just, that saved me. Well, I think both of these books that you mentioned just demonstrate your commitment to having a vision that's possibly different than anyone's had before and just the commitment to making it become a reality. So Gift Biz listeners, just as you're listening to the podcast today, you can also listen to audiobooks with ease. I've teamed up with Audible for you to be able to get audiobooks just like Lean In or Steve Jobs' book for free. All you need to do is go to giftbizbook.com and make a selection. All right, we are going to move into now my favorite question of the day, Katie, and that is my Dare to Dream question. I'd like to present you with a virtual gift. It's a magical box containing unlimited possibilities for your future. This is your dream or your goal of almost unreachable heights that you would wish to obtain. Please accept this gift and open it in our presence. What is inside your box? Mm, I love this. This is absolutely fantastic. I know exactly what is in my box. Oh, do share. (laughs) I would love, before I leave this planet, I would love that fair trade is understood and embraced as the wonderful mechanism it is for elevating women around the world, elevating rural women, getting them in a place of power, in a place of social equality within their world. And I would love for everyone to know and to support that work that it does. I love that. And you are certainly dedicating hours and hours, I know, to making that dream come true. Where would be the best single place that someone would go to find out more information about you? I would say our website, leakycollection.com. 
All right. And then as you guys all know, over on the show notes page, we'll have all the different sites for you. We'll have Facebook and Instagram and anything else that Katie has given me in terms of being able to connect with her. Also, as you all know, I'm always looking for interesting guests to be on this podcast. And so if you have a great story to talk about, or if you know somebody who has a great story, what I want you guys to do is go over to my Instagram account. That's at giftbizgal. Comment on any photo and just give me the information of who you think I should be looking at as a potential guest for the future. Okay, Katie, as I knew when we first started talking about this podcast, you have just given us such great information and insight into what you're doing, which is so different than a lot of the guests that I have on. So it's so great. As you start talking about wanting fair trade to be understood, hopefully we are making here a little small step in helping you to have that become a reality. I appreciate your joining us today. All the information you shared, the stories are spectacular. I just love <laughs> all of them. Safe trips traveling back to Kenya, and I know we'll stay in touch. May your candle always burn bright. Thank you so much, Sue. And I just respect what you're doing so much. It's just wonderful, wonderful work you're doing. Thank you. Learn how to work smarter while developing and growing your business. Download our guide called 25 Free Tools to Enhance Your Business and Life. It's our gift to you and available at giftbizunwrap.com tools. Thanks for listening and be sure to join us for the next episode. Today's show is sponsored by the Ribbon Print Company. Looking for a new income source for your gift business? Customization is more popular now than ever. Brand your products with your logo or print a Happy Birthday Jessica ribbon to add to a gift right at checkout. It's all done right in your shop or craft studio in seconds. Check out theribbonprintcompany.com for more information. After you listen to the show, if you like what you're hearing, make sure to jump over and subscribe to the show on iTunes. That way you'll automatically get the newest episodes when they go live. And thank you to those who have already left a rating and review. By subscribing, rating, and reviewing, you help to increase the visibility of Gift Biz Unwrapped. It's a great way to pay it forward to help others with their entrepreneurial journey as well. 